future? Do you look ahead with anticipation or with anxiety? Are you a person that is full of expectation or do you lean more towards living with dread? J.J. Watt is a defensive end who played for many years for the NFL's Houston Texans. He now plays for the Arizona Cardinals. He is one of the premier defensive players in the NFL. And of course, he is often asked for his autograph. But the tides were turned on him recently when a seven-year-old boy sent Watt his own autographed game jersey. The little boy put a letter in there and it read, I'm sending you my autographed game jersey so you will know me when I become a famous NFL player. So talk about a kid who knows what he wants to be when he grows up. And uh, Watt loved it so much that uh, the letter and the photos that he received that he posted on his Twitter feed, this kid has some guts and I like it. Well, I was thinking, you know, as followers of Christ, do we look into the future with earnest expectation that God is working? And so if he is working, then we're sure that what he's doing has already been done, kind of like the present-day autograph of a pro football player from the future. Do we have that kind of anticipation like that little boy? Or... Are we dragged down by our past? Are we so overwhelmed by our current situation that the future seems far off or irrelevant or unachievable? Well, today we want to talk about the future and forgetting. And our text is from the Gospel of John in chapter 21. If you have your Bibles, you may want to turn there. John chapter 21. Most church historians would agree that one of the most influential leaders of the early church was Simon Peter. Peter, the big fisherman, the early disciple, and later the apostle of Jesus Christ. Christianity would not be as we know it today had it not been for the influence of Peter. And Peter could not have become who he was had it not been for the experiences described in Scripture that he went through. Our gospel reading today focuses on a time of upheaval and confusion in the life of Simon Peter. He was one of the original followers of Jesus. Early in Jesus' ministry, Andrew had met Jesus, and he was so impressed that he went and brought Peter. And impulsively, Peter signed up to be on board. And he was there as Jesus rose out of obscurity, as Jesus became a national celebrity. He also watched as Jesus' fortunes changed and as the opposition in Jerusalem hardened. He stood with the rest of the disciples in absolute dismay on that Friday afternoon as Jesus was crucified on a Roman cross. It seemed as if there was nothing left of the Jesus movement. Crucified, dead, buried. But then Simon was among the group that first heard the women coming back from the tomb on that Sunday morning, claiming that it was empty. 
He heard the rumor that Jesus was alive again, that the Father had raised him back to life. Simon Peter even went to see the empty gravesite for himself. And he was present on those two Sunday nights in the upper room when Jesus appeared again to his disciples. He was there when Jesus extended his hands and let Thomas examine the nail prints. Peter saw all of it, but he didn't know what to make of it. His world had been turned upside down three times now. The first, when he met Jesus. The second, when everything seemed to collapse. And now, now this bewildering time of resurrection. You know, the famed futurist Alvin Toffler wrote a few years ago that the human psyche can process only so much change before it just begins to shut down. And so he wrote that people either blow up in frustrated violence or they regress back to some time earlier in their life when things were simpler. And it seems like that latter thing is what happened with Peter. In the midst of all of this confusion surrounding the death and the resurrection of Jesus, what is it that Simon decides to do? He decides to go back to the one thing in which he is certain of. He knows how to fish. He's not the first person to return to his roots under the pressure of great uncertainty. And so let's listen to these words from the Gospel of John in chapter 21. I'm beginning in verse 1. It says, After these things, Jesus revealed himself again to the disciples at the Sea of Tiberias, and he revealed himself in this way. Simon Peter, Thomas, who was called Didymus, Nathanael of Cana in Galilee, the sons of Zebedee, and two others of the disciples were together. And Simon Peter said to them, I'm going fishing. And they said to him, we're coming with you. And they went out and got into the boat. And that night they caught nothing. But when the day was now breaking... Jesus stood on the beach, and yet the disciples did not know that it was Jesus. And so Jesus said to them, children, do you not have any fish to eat? And they answered to him, no. And he said to them, cast the net on the right side of the boat, and you'll find fish. And so they cast it. And then they were not able to hand it in because of the great quantity of fish. And therefore, that disciple whom Jesus loved said to Peter, it is the Lord. And so when Simon Peter heard that it was the Lord, he put on his outer garment, for he was stripped for work, and he threw himself into the sea. But the other disciples came in the little boat, for they were not far from the land, about a hundred yards away, dragging the net full of fish. So when they got out on the land, they saw that charcoal fire already made and fish placed on it and bread. And Jesus said to them, bring some of the fish which you have now caught. And so Simon Peter went up and handled the net hauled the net to land, 
full of large fish, 153. And although there were so many, the net was not torn. Jesus said to them, come and have breakfast. None of the disciples ventured to inquire of him, who are you, knowing that it was the Lord. Jesus came and took the bread and he gave it to them and the fish likewise. This was now the third time that Jesus revealed himself to the disciples after he was raised from the dead. My goodness, what a story. What a moment in time. Simon Simon Peter encounters Jesus Christ. And most unexpectedly, Peter's life is spun around 180 degrees. Perhaps next to the resurrection itself, there are few events in Scripture that are more significant than the restoration, the turnaround of Simon Peter as a follower of Jesus There's so much that we could say about the radical change that took place in Peter's life. But this morning, I want to focus on the fact that during this intriguing breakfast gathering on the beach, Jesus showed more interest in Peter's future than he did in the past. Let's start by considering that Peter Peter feared the past. He feared the past. The truth is that at that moment of his encounter with Jesus, Peter was burdened with terrible memories of personal failure. He feared the past. I imagine that that Peter could not get it off of his mind the way that he handled himself on the last night of Jesus' life. You might remember that that evening at supper that the Lord had been unusually somber. And then in the middle of that meal, he had said to the disciples, we're about to be tested as never before. We could betray everything we've worked for. We need to pray for strength not to crumble under the pressure. Well, you might remember also that Peter was pretty full of himself, pretty arrogant. And so he responded brashly. He said, Jesus, you don't have to worry about this guy. I'm strong. I don't know about the rest of these guys, but there is nothing that would cause me to betray you, Jesus. I'll be with you to the death if necessary. When it comes to me, Jesus, you don't have to worry. And then just a few hours later, after Jesus was arrested, the whole ground shifted under Peter's feet. Fear did what it's capable of doing to any one of us. It turned him into a frightened, scared little child. All it took was a slave girl saying casually, aren't aren't you one of the followers of the man they just arrested? And it pushed him over the edge. He began to fill the air with angry denials. He was saying, I don't know him. I've never heard of him. I'm not one of his followers. And while those words were still echoing back and forth, there was a rustle up where Jesus was being interrogated. They brought Jesus out. He'd been roughed up pretty badly. Jesus looked at Simon. Simon looked at Jesus. And in that moment, Peter realized that Jesus had heard everything he just said. Listen to these words from Luke chapter 22 in verse 61. And then the Lord turned and looked at Peter. And Peter remembered the word of the Lord, how he had told him, 
before a rooster grows today, you will deny me three times. And Peter went out and wept bitterly. Do you feel the failure? Can you sense the fear in Peter? The thought of it must have broken his heart. There was Jesus surrounded by enemies, being treated like an animal, and then comes to the sound of his ears, the voice of his very best friend. And what is that voice saying? I don't know him. I've never heard of him. I'm not one of his followers. Simon must have thought how he had utterly abandoned the Lord. How must Jesus have felt? What a total failure Peter's life must have seemed at that moment. The one guy that Jesus had poured the most of himself into, now denying any connection whatsoever. The memory of it would be enough to crush even the strongest man. To crush Peter's heart. And so my guess is that it's the memory of that humiliating failure that might explain why Simon reacted as he did after the resurrection. Perhaps, you know, when the women came back and they said the tomb was empty. And they said there's some angels saying that Jesus is alive again. Can you just think about how elated Simon would feel? But then at the very moment also filled with terror flashing back to that night in that courtyard where their eyes met. And so maybe the reason that he decided to go fishing was not just to go back to a simpler mode of life. Maybe he was running from contact with the one who remembers so much. And so later we see those seven disciples who go back to the Sea of Galilee where it all began. And they were either so rusty in their skills or so, so uh, discombobulated about everything that had happened that they weren't having any success in their fishing. They'd been at it all night. The sun is coming up. Somebody on the beach shouts out, have you caught anything? Hey, how about trying the other side of the boat? Maybe it was the sound of the voice. Maybe it was what happened when they obeyed. But at that moment, that beloved disciple, that's John, that's his code name for himself, the beloved disciple made the connection and he said to the other guys in the boat, it's the Lord, that's Jesus. And he's here, right where we first met him. He's back again. And on hearing those words, Simon, who'd been stripped down to do hard work in the boat, takes a moment to put on his coat. Isn't that odd? And then did you pick up what it says in the text? He threw himself into the sea. That's an odd reaction, isn't it? Now the traditional interpretation is that Simon was so elated to see Jesus alive that he jumped in to swim ahead to the shore, ahead of the other disciples. But I think if you, if you read the text carefully, I wonder if the very opposite could be the interpretation. He may have thought to himself, I'm going to throw myself in the sea and just drown to escape 
seeing Jesus? What if he was so filled with horror at having to come to terms with his past that he actually tried to avoid contact? But then as he fell into the water, maybe he comes to himself and he realizes there is no running from a guilty conscience, is there? There's no running. If you try to run away, you carry your conscience with you. Where we are doesn't change what we are or what we've done. And so maybe Simon realized there's no way to run from that past. And even though he may have thrown himself into the sea in terror, he finally struggled up to the shore after the rest of the guys had brought in the boat. Carrying that burden of his past, filled with fear, uncertainty, anxiety. There's an ancient saying that reminds us that it's a fearful thing to fall into the hands of an angry God. And I wonder if Peter thought, how can the Lord be anything but angry with me given what I have done? Peter feared the past. But that's not God. God's focus is on the present and the future. Simon Peter comes to his faithful encounter with all kinds of baggage from the past. But when Jesus begins to deal with him, Jesus doesn't say anything about the past mistakes. He's interested in the present and in the future. And that's because God's focus is on our present and on our future. God is more concerned for our future than our past. He's more interested in what we can, can become than in all the things that we used to be. And if we ask how God can have that kind of mercy and that kind of, of hope, we need to go back and remind ourselves of something that Jesus said so many times throughout his ministry. He said, I came to not to condemn the world, but to save the world. And if that's God's intention, then no wonder that he is focused on the future. The future is the only place of creative possibility. The past can't be changed, can it? No matter how, how intensely you feel about what you did or what you didn't do, there's no way to go back and undo things. We can't redo or undo the things that make up our heritage, whether they're good, bad, or ugly. And so the only place open, like clay in the hands of the potter, is the realm of the future. God is more concerned about your future than he is about all the things that make up your past. And we've all known people who simply can't let go of the way that it used to be. Maybe some of us are sitting in this room right now, filled with remorse or regret or anger at what other people did to us back there in the past. Maybe we're just rehashing the past, so enmeshed, with what used to be that we're crippled in terms of the present, let alone even thinking about the future. There's a fable 
about two monks. The two monks are walking in a drenching thunderstorm. They come upon a stream swollen out of the banks. And as they come to the river bank, there's a beautiful young woman standing there. She's wanting to get to the other side, but she's afraid of the fast-moving currents. And in characteristic compassion, one of the monks says, can I help you? And the woman says, I need to cross the river. And so one of the monks picks her up and puts her on his shoulder, carries her through the water, and puts her safely down on the other side of the river. And then he and his companion went on their way to the monastery. Well, that night, the companion said to him, I've got a bone to pick with you. As monks, we have taken vows not to look upon a woman, much less touch her. And back there by the river, you did both. And the first monk said, my brother, I put that woman down on the other side of the river. You're still carrying her in your mind. (laughs) You know what? That's the circumstance of so many of us. We cannot meet something in the road of life, do it, put it down, and move on. We continue to be obsessed with the past at the expense of our future. Because Jesus came not to condemn, but to save, he was more interested in what Peter could yet become than all the terrible things that he'd done. You see, our past is a tremendous gift given to us in terms of teaching. So we don't want to forget the past completely. That would be a a terrible tragedy. But we can also remember the past way too much. We can become obsessed with the way it was and never glimpse how different our future ought to be. Years ago, there was a thunderstorm that came through southern Kentucky at a farm where a family had lived for six generations. And in the orchard, there was an old pear tree that blew over in the storm. It had been there as long as anybody could remember. And the old farmer was grieved to lose the tree. He remembered climbing it as a little boy. He'd eaten of its fruit all of his life. A neighbor came by and said, friend, I'm really sorry to see that your pear tree had blown down. And the the old farmer said, I'm sorry too. It was a real part of my past. And the neighbor said, what are you going to do? And the old farmer paused for a long moment and he said, I'm going to pick the fruit and I'm going to burn what's left. And to me, that is a wise way of working with the past. We need to reach back and pick the fruit. Learn from the lessons. But having learned what the past can teach us, we need to pick the fruit and burn what's left and move ahead into the future that God has for us. Peter feared the past. God's focus is on our present and on our future, and then finally, we must follow our future, not our past. Listen to the next part of the text in John 21, beginning in verse 15. Now, when they had finished breakfast, Jesus said to Simon Peter, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? Peter answered, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. Jesus said to him, 
tend my lambs. And then he said to him again, a second time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? Peter said, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. And Jesus said to him, shepherd my sheep. And he said to him the third time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? And Peter was hurt because he had said to him the third time, do you love me? And he said to Jesus, Lord, you know all things. You know that I love you. And Jesus said to him, tend my sheep. As I was working on this message on Peter's life and these events, I kept looking back to this past year. It's been a tough one, hasn't it? A pandemic, economic uncertainty, racial tension, political infighting, riots, unrest, anxiety, and fear have enveloped our society, our community, and yes, even our church. And I'm dismayed at this whole chain of events. I'm, I'm dismayed at the, the hateful words and attitudes being bandied about by political leaders of all persuasions. I'm dismayed by those who choose violence to uphold their point of view. I'm dismayed by those who choose words of hurt and condemnation to support their perspective. Most of all, I've been dismayed by the destructive events that have followed in our nation, in our community, and yes, right here in our church. We're reminded of how contagious destructive evil can be. If, in order to defeat the beast, we become the beast, then the only thing that wins is the beast, the beast of sin, Satan. This illness that surrounds us, and I'm not talking about a virus, this illness has broken out everywhere, everywhere we look, and we've not been immune, even in the Lord's church. But then... But then I come back to the way that Jesus reacted with Simon. And I come back to the incredible idea that God is more interested in our future than he is our past. Jesus asked Peter three times about love, likely reminding Peter of those three times that he had denied Jesus. But instead of dwelling on those past failures, Jesus consistently points Peter to the present and the future. Tend my lambs, Peter. Shepherd my sheep, Peter. Focus on your calling, Peter, not on your failing. Follow the future that I have established for you. And folks, if we're going to make any kind of progress out of this terrible past year, then we need to learn the lessons of our past. There's a lot back there of disappointment and failure and even shame. And we have to learn those lessons or we'll repeat them. But having learned them, we've got to forget some of that past. Burn it up and believe that God still has the potential for making a different and a better future than we have even seen or experienced. 
I believe that God has a preferred future for every person in this room and for this local church. These events in Peter's life call us to understand that what we can yet do is far more important than any broken things in our past. That is what we must strive for, individually and corporately, together. If we simply bog down into our past, looking at our failures, then all we're going to do is condemn ourselves and condemn one another, and nothing will come from it. All the way back in the year 1900, a German chocolate company released 12 postcards predicting what life would be like in 100 years. That's the year 2000, the 21st century. So how were they? How did they do? How close were they in predicting what life would be in what we now know as the 21st century? Well, you decide as you listen to some of these descriptions of the postcards. Personal airships. A picture of a couple flying around in their personal hot air balloon. That seemed like a far off thing. Now, what do we do? We can fly anywhere in the world, can't we? Here's another one. Watching a live drama performance while not in the theater. You mean kind of like TV or the movies? Here's one. An x-ray machine for police officers. Wow. Ever been to the airport? They've got those. A roofed city, kind of like a, a football stadium full of people. Easy excursions to the North Pole. I like that one. Hey, honey, let's, let's spend the weekend up at the North Pole. That one didn't quite pan out, did it? And then finally, a, a machine for creating good weather. Oh, I wish that would existed. It doesn't. You see, the future by design, is a bit uncertain. Humans will always get some predictions right and some very, very wrong. But folks, Jesus said that he knows the future, that he holds the future already. So let's stop allowing the brokenness of our past shape our present. And let's stop worrying about the future since we know the one who already holds it. And instead, let's step into the future with confidence, with hope, and with expectation that God has great things for us. The high calling of God, brothers and sisters, is that we must learn to live together in the present, in truth and love, People from different backgrounds, rich and poor. People with different skin colors and different political ideas. The high calling of God is not that we attack one another as do enemies, but that we learn to live together as brothers and sisters. And if we can make our response to this past year the same as Jesus made to Simon Peter, if we can believe that God is still more interested in our future, than our past, then the hardships of this past year can give birth to something better in our world, in our community. And yes, right here 
at Garden Way Church. Today, after this service is over, our church leaders, our elders and deacons and our staff, we're going to go in the gym and we're going to have lunch together. And we're going to spend some time praying for the future of this church. This is something that we've done a couple of times already. And we're going to pray about the future, not the future that we want, but we're going to pray about the future that God has for us. Today, we've invited a a few more folks from the congregation to join us and to pray with us. And this is something that we intend to, to continue to do. And so, if you would be interested in being a part of a future gathering like this, I encourage you to let us know. You can talk to one of our elders. You can talk to me. You can pick up one of those connection cards out there and simply just write on it, praying for the future. And that will be our signal. Put your name and contact there. That will be your signal that you're interested the next time that we have this gathering. But I want to say this today. You don't have to wait for some special gathering to do that. I want to challenge you to begin today to pray, not for the future that you think ought to take place, but for the future that God has in store for you, for this community, and for this church. Let's pray together.